reading from the book of Ruth. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law Naomi said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you, for you will be well provided for. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go, uncover his feet, and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, do not be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer. Good. Let him redeem you. But he, if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until morning. So she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl that you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. The word of the Lord. Well, good morning. My name's Paul. I'm the lead pastor here at the Daniel Island Fellowship. As we prepare our hearts to hear from God's word, I invite you to bow one more time with me as I share another prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. And in the oldest prayer of the church, I pray, come, Holy Spirit, come, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, this morning we are sharing from Ruth chapter 3. This summer we've been making our way through the book of Ruth. And for those who are new with us this morning or have not been with us for some time, um, I will provide a summary as to what this story means. But before we dive into the story itself, I want to begin with this question. Have you ever been spooked in the middle of the night? Have you ever been spooked in the middle of the night? Uh, this spring, I had the honor of going with 
over 30 men from the Daniel Island Fellowship up to the mountain, they would say, up into the mountains of North Carolina. And uh, it was a glorious time, not just connecting with the men, but connecting with God. And it seems uh, every mile we hiked and every conversation we held, layers were being peeled back from the men's hearts. Here's a picture of the group I was hiking with. We had to divide, and uh, I'm taking the picture, so I'm not in it, but I do want to highlight this uh, handsome uh, young man in the bottom right. His name's Andrew Bacon, and we're blessed to have him with us this morning here in the front to the right of me. You see, Andrew was courageous in going on this hike because he's from England. And uh, as I'll share in a minute, there are things in the U.S. that they don't have in England. And uh, I, that came to be true the first night. You see, it was storming. And uh, Andrew would be my tent mate. And so you divide into pairs, and, and often you wouldn't know who you're tenting with. And so in the middle of the night, I was surprised by both the thunder and the rain, but also by the look of my tent mate as I looked over and with big beady eyes, he's staring above our tent, like looking straight up. And I said, Andrew, are you okay? And he goes, do you see what I see? And I look up and there's a spider and the spider's looking at him and he's looking at that spider. And I, I said, uh, I do see it. And he goes, is it outside the tent or is it in the tent? You see, our tent had a mesh uh, top and then on top of that, a rain fly. And he's like, is it outside or is it inside? And I said, uh, I think it's outside. He goes, oh, good. Oh, good. And he goes, I have a confession. The scariest thing in England, the scariest things are twofold. Bees and cows. That's it. Cows. Yeah, you could be hiking through a pasture and be run over by cows. And uh, I even asked him today, what about spiders? He goes, not, not harmful ones. They just have daddy long legs. So he was spooked in the middle of the night because the spider was coming to get him. So he thought. And then uh, here's a picture from our last night together, if I can get it to pull up. Um, really beautiful. Uh, we would hike miles and miles each day. And we're the last tent on the horizon here. And we had this devotional that led into the darkness of night. And then we went back to our tent. And our tent had uh, zippers on both sides so you can enter from both sides, right? And he's about to enter. And then he pauses, spooked again. And I, I, I look at him. I say, is everything okay, Andrew? And he goes, well, there's some things in the tent. And so I look in, and there's two moths, you know, <laughs> flying around. We both have headlamps on. And I said, okay. And he goes, can you uh, put your face into the tent on your side? And I said, what do you mean? He's, he's implying like that those moths could fly at my face. And I said, so the moths can fly at my face? And he goes, yes. I said, so you want the, the moths to eat off my face? And he's like, I do. <laughs> and I did it because I love him. He was a great tent mate. Um, and here's the warning. You know, if you tent with the pastor, anything you say or do can and will be used in a sermon illustration, Andrew. But I do think there was a, another event in our scripture that we're going to talk about where this guy Boaz was spooked, right? 
I think the big idea that we will pull from our scripture is this, this morning. God is at work even in the dead of night. Sounds simple, but it's profound. God is at work even in the dead of night. We'll pull out three points under this big idea. So let's dive in. Point number one, God is at work and we can trust in him. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, my daughter, I must find a home for you. Literally, it means a place of rest for you, where you will be well provided for. Now, Boaz, with whose women you've worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight, he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes, then go down to the threshing floor. But don't let him know you are there until he's finished eating and drinking. When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. And I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. So if you just look at this story without any research, you're like, this is one of those weirdo stories from the scriptures, right? Naomi is instructing her daughter-in-law, Ruth, sneak out in the middle of the night, lay at this man's feet, uncover his feet, and just listen to what he has to say. It sounds a little seductive, doesn't it? But I would argue, and I think scripture makes clear, this isn't about seduction. It's about a sacred encounter. Before we look at the sacred nature of it, let me just give a, a review of our passage. You see, Ruth is the story of this woman, Naomi. Naomi was living with her husband, Elimelech, in Israel during the time of the judges. It says, as uh, we read in Judges, the book, um, in that day there were no kings and everyone did as they saw fit, which meant chaos, which meant violence. There was no central leadership. In fact, the leadership was with these judges, which were more or less like warlords. A famine then hits the land, and Naomi and her husband and two sons, they have to abandon ship and go to a foreign country named Moab. It was a very dangerous trip, a dangerous place. And yet they settle there, and before you know it, Elimelech dies. That's the first hit Naomi takes. But then there's hope because her two sons then find men, Moabite men, to marry. And they marry, and yet then again, boom, boom, both of her sons die. And, and chapter one is very dark, if you will, for Naomi. She's left her place, and she's lost the men in her life, and she's left with these two daughters-in-law. Then she hears that Israel is experiencing God's blessing yet again. There is a harvest and she turns towards Israel, instructs her daughter-in-laws, one of which is Ruth, hey, stay behind, get married, flourish in your life. And there's this beautiful quote by Ruth as we end chapter one. No, Naomi, where you go, I go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. She offers Naomi what the Bible known, knows as hesed, this covenant faithfulness, this covenant love to stick by Naomi's side. And so she leaves everything behind. They go back to Israel. Chapter two is about the heart and the hustle that Ruth displays to provide for her mother-in-law. And that's where we encounter this, this guy, this gentleman, Boaz, 
a wealthy, high-standing Israelite. And at the end of chapter 2, through the darkness and through the return to Bethlehem, to Israel, the depression lifts from Naomi, and she praises God. And then we hit chapter 3. And so a simple way to summarize uh, the first couple chapters of Ruth is this. Through the darkness, God has proven faithful to Naomi. And now, in an ironic twist, leveraging the darkness, Naomi trusts in him. She sends Ruth to the threshing floor to the feet of Boaz. Why? Well, he was a kinsman redeemer, a guardian redeemer. If you know anything about the Old Testament, in those days, if you lost the men in your life, all would go wrong. You would lose your heritage and you would lose your, your lineage. And so in Leviticus chapter 25 and other places in Scripture, God, through his mercy, kind of maps out a structure by which um, widows and orphans are cared for. And Boaz is one of these people that Naomi has identified as a kinsman redeemer. And the prayer that Naomi is basically having here is, I pray, Ruth, that he accepts you and redeems you, and through redeeming you, redeems me and us. That you could have a son, and he could redeem our family and inherit our lands. And this act of lifting up the garment and, and, and what we see here, this is an accepted act where Ruth risks things to say, will you marry me? Will you redeem me? You see, God is at work, and we can trust in him. And that's what Naomi, she's leaning into. We can trust in him now, Ruth. And I want you to go with him into the night and lay at Boaz's feet. And so here's the question. Are there areas in your life where God is calling you to trust in him, maybe even the dead of night? I know from a pastoral perspective, I know of certain people in here that are encountering a cancer diagnosis, and it's scary. I know there are people in here that are struggling as parents. I know there are people in here that are struggling how to honor their parents and love them even as they age. Might it be that God, even in the darkness, is calling you to trust in him afresh and anew? Point one, God is at work, we can trust in him. Point two, God is at work and we can risk in him. This is where the story gets good. Uh, before we dive into this passage, I want to dive into the history of our church. Most of you weren't with us in the early days. I, we were recruited down to Charleston not to plant this church, but so I could work for a national denomination helping plant churches around North America. It just so happened that I lived on Daniel Island. One day we got a call that there was a tragedy on our block and a loved one of one of our neighbors had died tragically. And I found myself weeping for my neighbor. That led Carly and me to begin a season of fasting and prayer. And um, through that, uh, we felt God saying, resign your national job and love your neighbor not just you know, theoretically, but practically by planting a church for him or her. Another way of saying it is God was saying, hey, be local and personal in your faith. Risk 
with me. Go all in with me. And it sounds great until it's not so great, right? So we started in our living room. The Roberts were with us in the early days. Uh, Wes was my co-pastor. And we were, we were so hopeful. We were on our hands and knees praying. And, and uh, we didn't have a building. So I started knocking on doors. We started making calls. Hey, will you let us meet in the DI school? No, no, we won't. Will you let us meet in this space? No, we won't. Let me tell you how crazy it got. Some of you are familiar with some of these spaces. You know where Cooper River Cycles is? Yeah, we tried to rent that. Do you know where Leedy's is? Yep, we tried to rent that. Do you know where there's a restaurant called Dig? Yeah, we tried to rent the second floor above that. Um, do you know where Daniel Island Dermatology is? Yep, tried to rent that. And on and on it goes. And we had no solution. It got to the summer of 2014. We'd been praying together and leaning into God and and I said, Carly, I, I don't know. Like, we don't have a solution to our space conundrum. And she goes, well, I'm out. I was like, what? You're out? And she goes, well, it seems practical to me. There's, there's no place to meet. And I was like, thanks, babe. Thanks for your support. And uh, true story. And the irony is this weekend, she's on a spiritual retreat in North Carolina by herself. And uh, she called me last night, and she goes, God's presence is so palpable here that I don't even want to go to the bathroom. I keep having to ask him, can I have some privacy? So God's clearly working in my wife's life. So what did we do? Well, uh, this building was available, and yet we were told over and over again, there's other companies that are going to rent out this space, and the owner uh, really doesn't feel led to rent it to a church. I kept leaving him messages. Finally, I said, uh, I've got a risk in him. I drove up to scout boats to the international plant, and uh, I asked to meet with the owner, Steve Potts. He was at lunch. I came unannounced or went unannounced. That's okay. I sat out front and waited for him to come back from lunch. He drives in. I think he was driving an Escalade. He drives in to drop off his wife. His wife gets out of the front seat, um, and that's when I made my move. I actually reached across the front seat and introduced myself to Steve Potts and said, Steve, my name's Paul Sorensen, and I've left you several messages. This might be awkward, but where I'm from, a small town, we like to meet face-to-face -face and look at one another in the eyes. And I'd love the opportunity to meet face-to-face -face with you and share, you, share with you about our vision for your space. He could have called 911, but he didn't. Um, he, said, he, he said, okay, let's meet at Dig for sweet tea tomorrow during lunch. And so we met at the DI Grill, and next thing you know, he leased us this building. Theologian Robert Hubbard has this to say, believers are not to wait passively for events to happen. Rather, they must seize the initiative when an opportunity presents itself. And so our story shares about the risk Ruth took. She went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant, Ruth, she said. 
Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. You see, as Ruth trusted in God, she risked everything. Specifically, she was a Moabite in the nation of Israel. Guess what? They didn't like each other. In certain parts of God's word said, don't care about the Moabites. In fact, don't show them any love or honor. Nonetheless, she was going all in. She was a woman. As we learn in chapter 2, Boaz had to instruct his workers to not lay a hand on her. Why? Because it was a dangerous time in the nation of Israel. It was the middle of the evening. If you read in other parts of the Old Testament, which can be very dark, the threshing floor during this time of, of year was a place where prostitutes would come. She was risking all of that to obey and follow and risk in faith to meet with Boaz. And the author of the book, where really Ruth herself does something beautifully ironic. She says, spread the corner of your garment over me, which literally means spread your wings over me. Now, she's using Boaz's exact prayer from chapter two. She's kind of sassy. He said these words to her in chapter two. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. You see that? What she's saying is that prayer you issued over me or declared over me, would you fulfill that for me and for Naomi? And here's the deal. Like Ruth, I think God is calling some of us to risk in him right now in this stage of your life. I think there are people being called to rise in leadership in our church, to step out, step up in faith. Beyond our church, I think in the workplace, in your home, you know God's calling you to boldness in your life. I know specifically there are people actually even not just talking about switching lanes in life, but switching careers and going into full-time vocational ministry. I know there are students in this room right now that are being called to the mission field years down the road. What God is inviting you to do is say yes with him and risk with him. God is at work and we can risk in him. And point three, God is at work and we can rest in him. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor, and now, my daughter, do not be afraid. I will do for you all, you ask. All the people of my town know that you're a woman of noble character. Although it is true that I'm a guardian redeemer of our family, there's another who's more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. How beautiful, how marvelous is this encounter? And a couple things I just want to quickly highlight about this, this uh, statement by Boaz. First, he says, this kindness, which is the word has said, this covenant loyalty you're showing me, it's greater than even what you showed before to your mother-in-law, Naomi. 
You're honoring me. There's other options, but you're, you're choosing me. Thank you. And then he goes on to say, uh, everyone knows you're a woman of noble character. In the book of Proverbs chapter 31, this is the exact language that is used. Isn't that incredible and beautiful? A Moabite, an outsider, a foreigner, an immigrant, you are a woman of noble character. And then he makes this crazy declaration. He says, there's another who's in front of the line, but if he doesn't take this opportunity, I will. As surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. And then he goes on. He says, bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. And when she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Then he went back to town. And when Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything that Boaz had done for her and added, he gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed or literally empty. Now for the nerds in the room that care about their random details, theologians say this is between 58 and 95 pounds of barley. And I know we have people that are into CrossFit and other you know, physical exertion activities. That's a lot of barley. You know, he wasn't just supplying her for the moment. There's a bigger story going on here. Do you catch it? And again, there's irony in the verbiage. He gave me these six measures of barley saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. If we rewind the tape, the only other time that that word is used in the book of Ruth is when Naomi came back from Moab and declares, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. You see what the author is doing here? You see what God is doing here? God is redeeming the lives of Naomi and Ruth. He's saying, you are empty, but I'm going to make you full. A play on words, if you will. And the story concludes with these words. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. See, Naomi, she knows what's going on. Wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. And the picture is clear. Boaz will stop at nothing until Ruth finds her rest. Until Ruth finds her redemption. Now zoom out of this story to the whole of Scripture. The Bible is clear. God will stop at nothing until we find our rest. We read in 1 John chapter 4, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is a real love. Not that we've loved God but that he loved us and sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. Guess who is the ancestor of Jesus Christ? As we'll find out in chapter four in the next couple of weeks. Ruth. God's promises 
proved true. You can read about the genealogy, Matthew chapter 1. You read those genealogies, and you're like, why is this genealogy here? Why? Because God is faithful. His promises prove true. And some of us here today are desperate to experience the rest in redemption of God. Some of us are running on empty. Some of us have experienced the loss that Naomi has experienced, loss of loved ones, loss of permanency. You're in a bad spot. It might be described that you're in a dark place. Some of you are being called to trust in him, to enter the darkness. Some of you are being called to rest in him, excuse me, risk in him, be bold with him, and, and lastly, rest in him. To find rest for your souls, whatever state that you're in. So in conclusion, God is at work even in the dead of night. Jesus offers this invitation. Come to me. All ye who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. As I close in prayer, I just want to invite you to say yes. Some of you are being invited, called in this moment, you know, to trust in God. It's been a while since you've really trusted in him. Maybe it's the first time ever. Some of you are being called to rise in him and risk in him. And some of you are being called to wait and rest in him, that he's with you even in the dead of night. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I and we celebrate this story. It's a foreshadowing of the greatest story of Jesus Christ. Some of us want to trust you, God. And we say yes. Some of us are being called to risk with you, God. And we say yes. Some of us are being called to find rest in you. And we say yes. Have your way, in Jesus' name, amen.